Amen. You may be seated. Let me just say it is so, so good to see this place filling up a little bit at a time. Uh, I had somebody say, well, we would have been back sooner had we had the nursery open. But pastor, it's not because we don't love you. It's because we love you that we kept our little ones at home. And so uh, it's just good to see, uh, again, people, things returning a little bit more to normal. And of course, we always want to just tell those that aren't quite comfortable yet. We understand that. We want them to make the best decision that they can for their family. Uh, we love them. And we know that so many of our church family is watching by video this morning. Uh, I want to make sure that you open up your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter three. That's where we're going to be camping, camping out. And as you're opening up, let me go ahead and begin with this. There are uh, straight shooters who like to say things the way that they are. And there are those who like to be around the bush. And um, there was a man by the name, he was a Methodist preacher by the name of Peter Cartwright. And he was definitely, with no doubt, a straight shooter. On one particular occasion, he was told that he, when he was preaching, that there would be the president of the United States, Andrew Jackson, in the congregation listening to him. Uh, he, he, he took that to heart. And People kept warning him and just telling him, now you need to be careful that you walk a tight line. Don't get out of line. Don't say anything that's going to offend the president of the United States. And so again, he took that to heart. And so he said in his opening statement, I understand that Andrew Jackson is here today. I've been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell unless he repents. <laughs> that's a uh, praise. Uh, Praise God for those who shoot straight, right, and, and speak like it is. And so John the Baptist was certainly a guy who was really cut from the same cloth of this particular preacher. He was a guy that really wasn't interested in what people wanted to hear. He wasn't interested in pulling punches. He wasn't interested in beating around the bush. He just wanted to say what people needed to hear and what was commanded of him by God. This was in part his role that God had given him. If we, you remember in the beginning of Luke chapter one, uh, when, when Gabriel, the angel Gabriel comes on the scene and begins to announce uh, John the Baptist's birth, this is what he said about him. He described his work this way. He said, he will, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will, make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And then a little bit later in that chapter, as he's addressing Zechariah, telling him that this child is going to be born, he again says to him that he will go before the Lord to prepare his way. That's twice we see that word prepare. He will prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sin. So his job was to prepare the heart of the people to receive the coming Savior. And so we see an emphasis on this now again in chapter 3. In chapter 3 and verse 4, if you look at that for a moment, what, what, what he's going to do now is he's actually going to quote from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah and see if you can see the same idea here. He says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Do you see it again? Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall, come, shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What Isaiah was doing is he was describing the prophet um, um, John the Baptist as, as really a herald. 
Now, in the ancient days, what would ultimately happen is when a king from the east wanted to go and survey and visit his different territories that he was in control of, uh, he would have a herald go before him. And that herald would go and sometimes speak on behalf of the king, the king's words. Other times he would go in part of to prepare the city or the town and the people for the coming of that particular king. And so he would tell them, you need to clean the place up. The king is coming. You need to make these crooked roads straight. You need to take these obstacles out of the way because, again, we need to make sure that the king is able to come and have access to you. And so what, what Luke is actually doing in, in quoting that in Isaiah, of course, is they're trying to give this, this kind of physical picture of the spiritual truth of who John was and what he was supposed to do. He was very much a herald. He was preparing the way of Jesus Christ. He was taking what was crooked and he was making it straight. And he was in and lived in a crooked time. And what I mean by that is people's view of God and what made and how to be right before God, all those views were completely skewed in part because of the crooked leadership. Uh, the priests who were meant to minister on behalf of the people, they were corrupt. Many of them were basically in the back pockets of, uh, of the Roman leaders and, and rulers of the day. And, and so they weren't after the interests of the people. They were after their own selfish financial interest, as well as those that were supposed to be experts in the law, the Pharisees and the scribes. They were supposed to be leading and teaching the law of God to the people, but instead they were teaching their own man-made laws, again, skewing and misinterpreting how a person is made right before God. And so God calls this prophet to come and make straight what is crooked so that people will be receptive of the coming Messiah. And in many ways, you and I have a very similar job. Now, we are not John the Baptist. He was the greatest man born of woman, obviously a part of Jesus Christ. But we still have a similar role, don't we? Similar role is that you and I are witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't just, when we share the gospel, if you know, we don't just sit there and say, I got good news, Jesus died for you. And then all of a sudden people are like, okay, I give my life to him and I repent and I, you know, play. That, that's not usually where we begin. It can't be where we begin. We have to begin with some bad news so that people recognize that the good news is actually good. And so this is in part what, what, what John the Baptist was doing. And it's in part what you and I need to do as we are preparing people to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. Four things that we see in the text that we must do to help prepare the hearts of others. Here, here's number one. We need to highlight the greatest need. We need to highlight the greatest need. Look, notice in verse one, it says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Chirconitus and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene. I, I'm never going to get through that uh, again in the next service. Somehow I did that time. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, it was common for Old Testament writers, when they're introducing the ministries of Old Testament prophets, 
to, to mention the king that was ruling during that particular time. And so it only makes sense that Luke would do the same thing here because John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And so he does the same by listing those, the, the Roman officials that were in charge and control and leading during this particular time. And so he gives us this long list, and we're not going to go through all of the names. And you could say, thank you, Pastor, for that. Go through all that. But there is one thing that we need to learn about them, and that is that they have one thing in common, and that is all of them are godless. They're godless. Uh, they are people who were antagonistic, and they were uh, harsh to God's people. And the reason for all of that, it was because they were in opposition to God himself. They hated God with everything that they had. So because of all this antagonistic and oppressiveness that the people were experiencing, they believed that the greatest need for them was temporal. You understand that? If you're being oppressed, if you're being harmed, if you're being mistreated, then the only thing you can think of is how can I escape this oppression? How can I escape this difficulty and this pain inside of my life? And, and they believe that was the greatest need. So they believe what needed to happen was a change politically. They needed a change of policy, politics, and politicians. If, if that would happen, then everything would be fine. And so because of this need of theirs, what they did was they completely distorted the promise of the coming Messiah. What they begin to do is take their need and place it upon the promise that a Messiah would come. Because what they believed is, okay, look, when the Messiah comes, he is going to be this powerful political fi uh, figure. Because that's our greatest need, is to be able to escape the present difficulties in which we are facing. But we find out uh, very soon that when Jesus, the Messiah, ends up coming on the scene, he's not that type of Messiah. He's not this powerful political figure. What is he? He is this suffering servant. Why? Because Jesus, though, though bad government might be a problem, it is not the greatest problem facing humanity. It is the sin of mankind that he came to solve and to be able to ultimately correct. And so when the people began to realize that Jesus was not that type of Messiah, what did they do? They rejected him and they crucified him on the cross. Now, what's sad about this, and to me, is that now here, now here we are hundreds and even thousands of years later, and people are still looking for the same type of Messiah even today. They're looking for the same type of Messiah who is going to come primarily to alleviate their temporal difficulties in this life without any thought of him eradicating their greatest problem, and that is the sin within their own heart. Now, I want to be very clear as a church, especially in the times in which we're living. We, God's people, and if you agree, say amen to this statement, should be the most compassionate people in all the world. Amen? We should have great compassion, and we should note suffering in the world, not only in the world as a whole, but even the suffering that is immediately around us and people that we know and in all kinds of suffering, whether that be financial or whether that be physical or whether that be emotional. And maybe it's the loss of a loved one, whatever it is. You and I should be the first within our hearts to feel a sense of compassion and hurt and empathy for that particular person and not only just feel it, but express a difference for that. Should we? not? Should we not be the first type that sit there and basically say, hey, it's not just that I feel bad for them, but if I have a way to be able to comfort them in the midst of their suffering, certainly I would want to be able to do this. Does that not sound like the life of a believer who is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit? I think it is. But what we must do is we must realize that in the midst of that, that we do not get lost, that what the ultimate need of that suffering individual is, 
is the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to their God. We cannot forget that. Now, why do I emphasize that way? I emphasize that because the church has done a horrible job of keeping that in balance. If you look through church history and you go back, what you will find is there will be periods of time that people are very good at preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're very good. They're preaching and they're preaching it clearly and they're upholding it. But sometimes they begin to drift and all they think is all we have to do is, is just preach this gospel and then in the midst of it, they seem to be losing any kind of tangible compassion to those who are around them at all. So this compassionate message begins to lose kind of power in a sense because what it's cloaked in in the actions and lives of the people who are promoting it doesn't seem to be able to match up. Then there were other times where people recognized that. And then they begin, the, the pendulum swings. You know, we can never be balanced in any way. We always have to go from one extreme to the other, right? And so what we do is then, then the next generation comes up and goes, hey, we need to do more. We need to do about this, more about the suffering, the physical suffering that's going on. And then they begin to pursue that as though that's the only thing that they need to be doing. And then what happens is over a period of time, they take part in what we, what we call kind of the social gospel is that they just need to make sure that they're helping people in their pains in this life, but they forget about preparing them for the eternal pain that is to come if they don't come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so my point is, as believers, let us just agree. Even if the whole world is in disagreement right now, let us agree what God has called us to do. We should be compassionate people. We should care for one another. It's neighbor love. That's the whole point. It, when, when, when God and his love is in us, we are going to look at people and we're going to see their suffering. We're going to want to be able to meet them. But at no time can we sit there and say, hey, I feel great simply about and fulfilled simply about helping them with their temporal needs. There should always be this pool and this fire that sits there and even in a discussion with them and say, hey, I know this is painful. I know the loss of a husband or a loss of a child or, or, or the fact that now you have cancer. I know these are terrible things and I, and I weep with you in this and I want to help you with this. But there has to come a discussion at one point. But brother, sister, this is a problem, but there is a much larger problem that you are facing. And that is your sin against a holy God. And so what we're doing is, I think what Luke does is in driving this, he sets up the mindset of the people in the very beginning saying, hey, this is what we think the greatest problem is. When John the Baptist comes on, he goes, you're missing your greatest problem. Your greatest need is actually salvation. So he, said, he sits there, so let us, you and I, be faithful to prepare the way for others by highlighting their greatest need. Number two, let us highlight what must be done. What must be done? You know, it's interesting when you read the gospel accounts of Matthew and Mark about John the Baptist, and it's a little bit different than, than, than Luke's here because they actually emphasize what he looks like. They give physical descriptions. And you know that crazy physical description of John the Baptist. He was a crazy... I mean, you, you would think he literally lost his mind. The guy moved to 120-degree wilderness, right? Who does that? Um, you know, getting out of the heat. You even tell somebody when they're crazy, they're like, dude, you need to get out of the heat, all right? Because you're not thinking correctly, all right? This man moves to it, all right? That's where he begins his church, not probably wise. But he goes there, and then he wears camel hair, all right? Uh, that can't be comfortable. He eats locusts and wild honey. So they give this description, but Luke chooses not to describe him physically at all. He wants to use his time and, and his sentences to be able to describe his message. And the message that he describes that he preaches is a message of 
repentance. Look at verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now, I want to just touch on something very quickly. This baptism that he was leading, John's baptism was different than the baptism of Christ. There, there, there's some similarities, but there's differences as well. Uh, the, the, John's baptism of repentance was basically an outward declaration of people's internal repentance, okay? So that was basically going, hey, I'm going to show that I repent. This is a way to show that I am repenting from my sin. When we talk about believer's baptism that you and I take part in, it's similar to that. I mean, in other words, when a person is being baptized, we recognize that they've repented of sin. But it's more so of them identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, of the faith that we have ultimately placed in him. But John comes upon the scene, and his message is one of repentance. Why? Because people need to come to repentance and understand their condition to be able to see Christ as glorious and, and, and want him, right? So this is what he's doing. He's setting them up. So he tells them to repent. Now, that's important for two reasons. Number one, what it does is it basically emphasizes and it highlights this idea of what they did, what they specifically did. See, the word repent means to turn around. The word repent, and specifically in the way that one thinks and the way in which acts and lives. So his call to repent was to stop thinking sinfully, and stop living sinfully. That's his call. That's what he's calling people to do, to turn from that. And so, and so in the midst of that, uh, what he does is, is, is he, he's drawing the attention to the people that of their own personal guilt. He says, you believe that your greatest problem is life is what other people are doing to you. Your greatest problem is what you have done to a holy God that you have rebelled and that you have ultimately sinned against them. That's your problem. Why is it such an important part of the message? It's so important part of the message for a couple reasons, because if you find yourself always playing the victim, you will never come to a point where you will actually take on personal responsibility of what's going on. If you always playing the victim, then it was, it's always somebody else's issue. And in order for my situation to be fixed, somebody else has to do something. I don't have to do anything at all. Why? Because I'm ultimately the victim. And if you're the victim, you're never going to be seeking for forgiveness. Why? Because there's nothing to forgive. You haven't done anything. And the whole point is when Christ comes on the scene is to seek the forgiveness of Christ. So when he comes, he tells them, he emphasizes repentance to show them what they did, but now even more so to show them Show them what they must do, what must ultimately be done. Here's what he says. In order to be forgiven of your sin, remember he's coming for baptism for the forgiveness of sins. To be forgiven of your sin, you must leave the sin. You, you, you must abandon the sin that you have been living in. This is, this is Paul's, this is John's words, not mine. Now note in verse seven, John said, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now this is interesting. Remember where his church is. It's out in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness. It's 120 degrees, right? In the shade, basically. Nobody, nothing can even live out here. He tells the people to come out. They all come out. You and I would go, hey, guys, thank you for the inconvenience. <laughs> thank you for coming, and it's clear that you're sincere. He opens up with, you brood of vipers, right? You brood of vipers. You belly dwellers. You belly draggers in the dust. You eaters of dust. You serpents. This is the way that he opens up the discussion. 
And he tells them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, this is what I believe he's saying. He says, you came out here because you were scared, because you know that there is wrath. The wrath of God is coming towards sinners, and you are here to ultimately escape it. But the reason he calls them the brood of vipers is because he knows the heart of men, and he knows this, that they want to flee the judgment, but they don't want to flee the sin that is brought upon the judgment upon them. So he recognizes that. And he says, look, you came out and you, you've been warned against the judgment. That's why you're here. But, but, but it's not just you identifying that you're a sinner that we need you to do or that you're guilty or even to be afraid of the sin itself. What we need you to be able to do is jettison the sin. One author said it this way. They wanted to get out of danger, but they still wanted to be snakes. That's the difference. And you hear that oftentimes. Now, I need to tell on myself, and you're going to think less of me, if that's possible, uh, by the uh, illustration that I give. And, um, and when I was in seminary, and I should have known better by now, I'd already been in the ministry for quite some time, but I was taking an evangelism class. Yes, even pastors have to take evangelism class because they, too, don't know what they're doing. And so uh, we're trying to learn how to share the faith. And our professor basically said, you have to share your faith this many times within the semester. You can do it all in one week. You can spatter it out, whatever it is. And so, um, so but in, in, you can use whatever method you want to. You can even write your own method. So you don't have to do EE or the four spiritual laws or the Roman road. You can just make up your own way of sharing the gospel. So because I'm smarter than everybody else who has ever shared their faith with people, I made up my own way of sharing the gospel. And it was immensely effective, at least in one way. Uh, I had asked the pastor of the church that we were, we were at, it was called Wood Baptist Church, and, and, we were, and it was out in the middle of nowhere, the bunch of farmers and everything. And, and we had gone out there, and I just told him, I said, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to share the gospel with the farmers around here. And then if they come to faith in Christ, then we have a church right here. We could tap them right in, right into the church, and then they can be discipled. And he goes, man, that's a great idea. Go for it. So I begin to drive my truck around to farm to farm, wave down guys on tractors and everything else. And I was immensely successful, if I do say myself. myself the first day, four people came to faith in Christ, or prayed to receive Christ. Second day, one. Third day, two. I had seven people that I had gotten to pray sinner's prayer. I was very excited about this. And I had told all of them where the church was and what church they needed to come to, what time our church was going to be that Sunday. And I went back to the pastor and go, bro, we just got seven new people in the church that just came to faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't it awesome? It's amazing. He looked a little skeptical. And, uh, and, and I said, so, so I told him, this is where they're going to be. He goes, you sure they're going to come? Yeah, they're going to come. Not one showed up that next week. And so I, I sat back and I'm thinking, what, what is wrong? What, you know, what did I do wrong? And I kind of tried to track some of them down. Of course, they is like ghosts. You couldn't find them anymore. And, and one or two of them I found. But here's, here's what I did. When I was trying to figure out what I had done, I went through and I felt like I'd done everything right. The opening was great. I came to, they came to realize that they were sinners, that they were under the judgment of God, that they were facing the wrath of God because of their sin against a holy God. And I told them that if they wanted to flee that, and I would even ask the question, you don't want to go to hell, do you? And it's amazing. I always have people say, no, I don't want to go to hell. So I'm like, I've got them right in my pocket, my, right in the palm of my hand. So here's what you need to do. You need to believe in Jesus. You need to believe that he came and he died for you and that he died on the cross for you. Now, all of this is correct, yes? And so we sat there. And so, so well, afterwards, you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ, that he died in your place. But what I realized at that particular point is when I showed it to a professor and some other buddies, they go, the one thing I just don't see anywhere in here is any mentioning of repentance, does the Bible not say repent and believe for the forgiveness of sin? 
And he goes, but there's no mention of repentance at all. He goes, here's what I think had happened. I think these people, much like the time of John, were coming out willing to listen to you because they wanted to flee the wrath to come without fleeing the sin that caused them to bear that wrath. And so people have a problem with that. Here's why. Because people begin to think that sometimes it's called lordship salvation and people bug out about that. And some of you might as well. But let me, let me just explain what, what, what I mean by that. What I simply mean is, when we talk about repenting and believing in Christ, we're talking about two sides of the same coin. It's called saving faith. Saving faith is not just believing cognitively some truths to be true. Remember in the book of James? In the book of James, he even says, you know, the, the, the demons believe. The demons believe and they shudder. In other words, they have more, enough sense to believe it enough to know that this is true, but are, this, are, are, are the demons born again? Of course not. And, and so there has to be more than just a mental assent to knowledge. And, and so you sit there and say, well, what is there? Well, then there's this call to repentance. But we know that repentance alone can't be. You can't be a person who just gets up and goes, today, I'm going to repent. I'm going to stop doing bad things. I'm going to do good things. And that's going to save me. What is that? That's works righteousness. He says, no, but when you take those two things together, see, here, here's what God says. He says, I will reject the proud, but I will give grace to the what? Humble, to the humble. A person who does not bend the knee to God in submission by turning from sin is not submitting to God. He is arrogant. He is not humble. What he's saying is, my way is still the best way. I will do what I say. I'm not submitting to you, Lord. All I want you to do is work for me and get me out of hell. Do you see the difference between there? So what, what salvation, saving faith looks like is a person repenting and turning from something and turning to someone. Now we're going to look more to the someone next week in the second part of the sermon, but you get that, right? And so what do we have to do? We can't, we can't be so shy to people. I, I've had so many people in sharing the gospel say things like this. Well, does this mean that I have to stop drinking? Have you ever had that before? Does this mean I have to stop smoking? Does this mean I have to stop swearing? Does this mean, you, you get it. You've, you've heard these things before and you really don't know what to say, right? So part of you is like, no. You can keep swearing and cussing and cursing and, 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 and you're like, well, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. But the reason you want to say that is because you're not saved by what you do or what you don't do. You're saved by what Christ has ultimately done. But at the other time, you're sitting there going, here's how I respond it now. Absolutely, you got to stop it. And they say, why? Not because you stopping those things will save you, but it will inclinate and it will demonstrate true faith in Jesus Christ, repentance true actual repentance and true faith saving faith in Jesus Christ requires that repentance. And this is what he's doing. He's trying to get them to understand there has to be a turn and before we place our faith in Jesus Christ. So here's another one. Number three, highlight what can't happen. So we've got what's most important, right? What, what they need the most. We, we've got what they must do. They must repent from sin. And, and third, they must, we, we, he highlights what it can't happen. And in part, you cannot save yourself through religious practices. That's going to become evident here. Look at verse 8. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So here's his message. Stop doing this. Start doing that. Stop doing sinful things. Stop, start doing those things that are righteous. Now, some of you are sitting there going, man, this seems like legalistic in law. It is. This is the old covenant. This is not the new covenant. This is a transition between Old Covenant and New Covenant. He's the one that's going to cross and span the both. But there's an essence of that law that we use within 
the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ because people have to understand their guilt and shame before they come to faith in him. And so here's what he does. This is all old covenant, but remember something. They have already tried this for hundreds of years, thousands of years. They had tried to do what is right. This old covenant being that God says, if you do what is right, I'll bless you. If you do what is wrong, I'll curse you. And they have tried like crazy. Over time, to fix the problem, what they did was they ended up changing what it means to be righteous. So instead of righteousness being that we are obedient and submissive to God out of a pure heart, right? Now what it is, is if you could just keep all the laws, the external laws, the external religious laws. So and to be righteous is to do these things that anybody can do if they're just really stick to it. And then instead of God saying, no, I want heartfelt obedience and submission to me. And they're like, yeah, can't do that but we could do these religious things. And throughout history, this is what we've found over and over. And by the way, this is why the prophets kept saying to obey is better than sacrifice. That's what it kept meaning. God's not looking for you more, more bulls, more sheep, more religious things. He's looking for a change and a submission of heart. And so here's, here's what happened all the way through all history. This is what man keeps doing. Very, very religious. What religious things can I do to be made right before God? We think of Muslims praying five times a day, taking a pilgrimage to Mecca once in life, giving of uh, alms to the poor. We think of our Catholic friends who many of them, not all, but many of them, of course, are, 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 uh, believe in the sacraments, believe in the continual confession, believe in uh, making sure that they're doing good things and doing good deeds and praying certain prayers and before you think that we're beating all of them up, let's beat up Protestants as well, so-called Protestants. With Theirs looks a little bit different, but yet it's surprisingly similar, reciting a prayer, walking an aisle, signing a card, joining a church, and being baptized. So it's the same thing. Are you right with God? Yeah, I was baptized when I was four. You remember that? No, my mama told me. And you're secure in that? Yeah, I'm pretty good with it. That, what is that? That's, that's religious acts. And I'm playing a thing. And I was talking to a young man from our church and he was talking with me about, is it okay if I just go on all day? I know you're just loving this so much. I just am running out of time. So you need to listen quicker. So, so what happens is I was talking to a young man in our church and basically he, he was telling me that he, is, he had quite the mission field where he was going to school and seemed like there was just tons of young Catholic men that were there. Even the, even the teachers and professors and coaches, all of them were, were are, are Catholic. And he says, it's so strange. He goes, it's so prominent now. He goes, that they're trying to convert me to, to, to Catholicism. And he goes, I've never had this before. And I go, oh, really? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, but there was an interesting conversation that we had. They, that one of the professors began to ask me specifically, what did you guys do when you had to shut down church? And he goes, he goes well, we had to shut it down twice. He goes, once, just because we didn't know what we were dealing with. The second was, was that our pastor blew it and ended up getting COVID and it ruined it for the rest of us. And so he says, and so basically we had to kind of shut down. He goes, what do you mean shut down? Now, this is a Catholic gentleman speaking. And he goes, how did you shut down? He goes, how in the world were you able to take the sacraments if you were shut down and not be able to meet? You see what his concern is. His concern is if I can't take the sacraments, then I can't be assured of my own salvation because I need to do these things to make sure that I'm right with God. And this young man on his own account, a teenager, basically just sat there and he says, at that point, it was so clear to me. These are completely two different messages. One message is I must do all I can and through me, much, my much doing, I can be certain that I'm accepted by God. The other is 
placing my faith completely in the completed work of Jesus Christ, allowing him do it all and not panic, but rest in peace of that. And so I think that that's a beautiful picture. He's just saying to them and to us and to everybody that we share, you can't get there from here. You can't be saved through being really, really religious. And not only that, but you can't be saved. You can't be right before God. You can't have forgiveness of sin by, in, in the same way uh, of, uh, because of your spiritual heritage. Now, the people that he's speaking to, some of them are Gentiles, but others of them are actually Jew, Jewish people that had come out to be able to listen. And, and, and these Jewish people, man, they had the greatest religious, religious heritage that one can imagine. They were related to Abraham, to whom God himself had given an everlasting covenant. So a lot of them were thinking to themselves, Hey, bro, you may think I need to repent. I don't need to repent. Have you seen my line? Have you seen my family? It's full of Baptist pastors. What do I have to worry about? And so he looks back, and, and, him, and, and um, John, knowing that they were saying this, said this, and do not begin to say to yourself, this is just like a parent, right? You know what your kid's about to say, and don't you even begin to... And here he is with them, and he says, and don't even begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham for our fathers. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear fruit is laid down and thrown into the fire. He says, don't even, don't even put your faith in the fact that you're children of Abraham, because if God wants to, he'll just make rocks into the children of Abraham. That's not going to get you from, where, from here to there. It's not going to. So don't rest on those things. So what, what do they do? Well, get what he's ultimately saying. Uh, John is very careful to say your religious rituals and acts is not enough. It's not going to cut it. Your, your, your religious heritage. Now, how do we even think of that religious heritage? Ch folks, within this church in the last 16 years that I've been a pastor here, I've had people who have sat there and said, well, you know, my mom was really religious. What are they doing? They think this is like a two for one, they think. If she's in, then I'm in. Because I'm, I'm the daughter. It doesn't work that way. We do understand that, right? And, and so, so I, I've even had one of my own family members one time tell me, say, don't come and tell me about God and being right for God. My family actually built a stained glass window up in the Northeast, and it's still there today. Well, if you're relying on your confidence that you will see God based on a stained glass window that your family put up years ago, you are in big, big trouble. And so what is he ultimately trying to say? What he's saying is, it's not going to be rituals. It's not going to be your religious heritage. The only way to be confident that you have been saved from sin is to bear fruit consistent with repentance. So you have to repent, but how do you know whether you repented? You bear fruit. Now, what is this bearing fruit? Let me go very quickly. Uh, he's going to talk about it in Luke 6. In Luke 6, Jesus explains, uh, verse 43 through 45, he said this, For no good tree bears bad fruit. Or again, does a bad tree bear good fruit? For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from the gramble bushes. So Jesus was pointing out nature. He said, what is produced from you comes from what your nature is. If it's a fallen sinful nature, then you could expect nothing but fallen sin. If you have a new nature in Jesus Christ, then you can expect actually what? righteousness in the midst of this. And so this is what I think people are starting to yawn. So let me try to hurry just really quickly. And so in the midst of this, what is he saying? He says the same with the fruit in verse 45, the person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Here's what it simply says. He says, what you guys need to do is you need to leave evil. You need to do good. They now know that they can't do it because they have tried time and time again. 
So what he was calling them to is something that only Jesus Christ will be able to do with them. He will change their very nature from the inside. And when they change them, what will they do? They will bear fruit, which is consistent with repentance. So let's explain what that is just a little more. The Bible says the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And let me say this. When I look around in the world, in the United States, I'm not seeing a whole lot of this fruit at all even from a lot of people who are proclaiming and professing to be believers in Christ, I'm not seeing a lot of this fruit. But let me say this before you all get really, really mad at me. Time to finish. All right, so uh, here's what they do. They want to know what this looks like. What does it actually look like, this fruit that we need to ultimately bear? So he's given a very practical lesson. Here's what it looks like for a person when they are changed. Verse 10, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has, has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized by him. And they said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by, by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. This is what he does. He just takes people from the everyday and he says, if you're truly born again, it's going to be evidence because you're going to be ra- living a radically different life than what you lived. And he goes, you're not going to live a selfish life. He goes, if you have two shirts, basically tunic is a shirt underneath a shirt and undershirt underneath a shirt. He says, and if there's somebody without a shirt, he goes, the compassion that's now resides within you in Jesus Christ is, is, is going to kill the selfishness within you to want and to own everything, and you're going to gladly be able to give it to somebody who doesn't have. That's what compassion is going to lead you to do. And he says, and if you're a tax collector, which means you're a thief. You're a thief. You're stealing stuff that's not your own. That's what tax collectors would do. They would take a certain amount that the government would require, and then they would take a certain amount above that, and by taking a certain amount above that, they would then make their profit. It's why everybody hated them, because they knew they were crooks. He says, and by the way, if you are a tax collector, he doesn't even tell them to stop being a tax collector. Isn't that interesting? He just says, but be a righteous tax collector. So within your business, instead of you being a crook, taking things that aren't your own, take only what is right to be able to take. And then he goes, and there's a soldier that comes up. Again, people not a fan of a Roman soldier because of their forcefulness and their oppression. Then what does he ultimately tell them? He goes, the way that you'll know that you've truly repented and now, of course, we know in placing our faith in Jesus Christ, is what? Is, is that you will no longer be harsh to those and abuse your power on other people. A lot of people are trying to figure out exactly what the answer is to everything that we go on in the world. And, 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 and we who sit there and say, we desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ to go forth through all the country and all the world. That's what we need. And then there are others that will say, but that's not enough. So let me explain, say two things with that. Number one, if it's not enough, we are in big trouble. Because I do not know anything else in the world except for the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes crooks honest and oppressors gentle. I don't know anything in the world that does that except for being regenerated and changed. Because a bad tree will always produce bad fruit. Good tree, good tree that is changed by the grace of Jesus Christ, produces good fruit. It's the only thing. But in a way, I understand what they say. What I mean is that's not enough. 
It's not enough if all we end up doing all the time is just preaching a gospel. What we need to do is live out that gospel. So we need not to be thieves and crooks and take advantage of people and use our power in the wrong way. See, there's always going to be, no matter where you are on the cultural spectrum, there are always going to be temptations for you to sin. If you are in power, you are always going to feel the threat. You are always going to feel the temptation to abuse that power for your own selfish gain. It's just there. That's not a political statement. Do you understand that? It's just what is within us. But if you are also, if you're on the lower end of those things, what are you going to do? You are going to hate the person that is over you. You're going to want to rebel from any kind of leadership. You are going to want to take something that perhaps maybe is not your own. These are sinful things that all people deal with. It's why there is only one answer, the person of Jesus Christ. And so we've got to be able to share with people, hey guys, guess what? This is what you cannot do. What you cannot do is you cannot rely on your religious activities. You cannot rely on your religious background and family. What you must do is you must be transformed and bear fruit, which is insistent with repentance. And then what we do, as we show next week, that can only come from Christ changing you. It's the only way. And then look at the very last thing that he says. So we have to highlight the greatest need. We have highlight what must happen. We have highlight what can't happen. And then here's the final thing. Highlight that time is short. Did you notice that, that, that phrase when he sat there? And he says, now, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. He's talking about expediency. Now, I understand that he's a hellfire and brimstone preacher, right? That's what he is. He's, the, he's old school. We don't do that anymore. Maybe we ought to do that a little bit more. Maybe we ought to act and know and tell people, you feel like you have all the time in the world to repent and get right and place your faith in Jesus Christ. You do not have all the time in the world. That today may be the only day that you have. This may be the only thing. The only thing that I can think of sometimes when you think of hell, the worst thing imaginable is obviously being separated from God through eternal torment. We understand how awful that is. Your mind can't even get around how bad that is. The only thing I could think of it being worse is thinking of all the opportunities that were extended to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And your whole life you sit there with the regret of going, why didn't I, why didn't I, why didn't I, why didn't I? And you say, well, you're just trying to Make people fearful. No, I'm trying to be biblical. Just trying to be biblical and preach the text as it's there. And what he does is he calls for you and the people that you need to be able to call and the people that you've been talking to for so long about sharing the gospel with and you've been sharing and sharing and sharing and they still haven't decided, there has to come a day that you and I sit there and go, hey brother, you've heard this for a long time. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? You have to repent. You have to turn. You don't know how much time you have. Do it today. And that's my message for you today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We love you, God. We thank you for the time that we've had together. And Lord Jesus, um, I thank you for your word. How difficult it is to be able to explain something that is now crossing from old covenant to new covenant, but yet we see aspects of the law that is still needed in our witness today so that folks see the need for Jesus Christ. God, by no means am I saying that repenting and the acts of not doing bad things saves us. What I am saying is repentance plus belief in Jesus Christ is a demonstration of saving faith. It's what it looks like. So we love you, God. I pray that you will call people here to it today and people who are on the television as well. God, lead folks to faith in you. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? And I'm gonna be down here. I'd love to pray with you. If you need to come and pray, 
But will you do business with God? Either two things, either, hey, I need to get saved, or number two, God, help me with my witness. Help me be more clear in my witness. Help me more be more bold in my witness. All right, let's pray.